Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. We're graced by the presence of Staff 1, Lauren, and Staff 2. Hey. This week we're going to be talking about robotics, advances in robotic surgery, robots that can help you around the home. We're just going to be talking about some of the amazing work done by a robot up in space, even though it's meant to be broken. Plus, we find out how robots can actually help you in and around your home this year in 2014. This week on Bridge Point, Robotics. And now we launch into our Launchpad News segment. This week's City of Science is space. And the reason we're going to be talking about space is because every one of our stories is either going to have to do with robotics, which are ultimately used for space travel because humans are expensive and weak and robots are fantastic and less likely to die. Um, plus, uh, space is home to many of these fantastic stories. And at the end of this week's episode, you'll hear a short story which actually ties together robots and space in the one place. So that's why space for this week is our city of science. But if you want it to be more specific, I'd definitely say it's the L5 Lagrange point that will be the city of science for this week. So Justin, have you ever done that thing, you know, where you've got like a pair of shoes or a pair of jeans that you're just wearing past the point of wearing? I mean, they've like actually physically worn through. You're getting water in your shoe every time you like step on it. I have to say that uh, this is an ongoing dispute that my wife and I are having about many of the pairs of shoes and clothing that I own, which could be easily fixed if I either went and bought new ones or replaced them, or even like fix them. But I choose not to do this and suffer in silence resolutely and stubbornly using things that pretty much are obsolete, much in the same way the Victorian power industry continues to use its coal-fired power plants. However, it is it is something that I do struggle with, Lauren, yeah. So I know you can go down to like your local Target and just like pick up a new pair of shoes or anything, but if you're in space, for example, you're not going to have that opportunity. Yeah, it's a bit hard to go down to the local uh, 3D printers are us in space and buy a new space rover or probe, and that's why the Rosetta space mission had such difficulties, that once they fired their harpoons, there was not much more they could do about it, because there was no one really, there wasn't really the ability to call RACV and get them to come out and, and, and give them some roadside asteroid assist. So when you're up in space, uh, there's not that much you can do, especially the further uh, you're out in orbit. And if you're out really close in orbit, like the Hubble Space Telescope, you can go up there and fix a cracked mirror or a failing gyroscope, which is very expensive because you need to send the space shuttle up there and it's got to grab it and you've got to do some complicated stuff. And then you have to perform brain surgery whilst wearing a massive space suit on a very expensive telescope. And that's really hard. So generally, we, t- we tend not to like replace or repair stuff that's in space, mostly because it's really difficult. What this means is that the engineers and scientists in charge of these robots have to go to a lot of effort to come up with creative solutions to keep their things running. We've heard the stories about the Curiosity and Spirit rovers on Mars that went well beyond their design lifetime because they managed to uh, clean their solar panels at, at the local tornado car wash to lift all the dust off the backs of their, to- their solar panels, which they never planned to do, but they found after doing it once accidentally that it could save the probes, and they ran for 10 times longer than they were supposed to. A 90-day mission ran for over five years, and that, that was incredibly fortuitous. And much in the same way, engineers have found a way to keep the Kepler space probe going well beyond its normal endpoint. So what is the Kepler space program? Right, so the, the Kepler space probe is a probe that was launched in 2009, and it's basically a really powerful telescope, not the same way as an optical telescope that the Hubble Space Telescope is, 
but it's got a really defined job and it uses really sensitive photosensors to actually pick up variations in a star's light. So by picking up the wobble of a star, or rather when a star blinks in and out of, of, of light intensity over a quick period of time, what that means is that something's passing in front of it. And so what Kepler does is it stares at all these stars, catalogues what their, their glimmering is like and their, their wobbling is like, and then uses that to detect planets. So the, the, the 2009 Kepler space mission is all about hunting for planets. And in fact, they found thousands of planets over its lifetime. It was only meant to go 3.5 years, and, but they found you know, over 997 confirmed exoplanets in more than 400 different stellar systems, plus you know, another 3,000 that they've not formally confirmed yet. And it's absolutely incredible to think about all these planets this thing has found. But it's been running for five years, over five years in fact, and it was only meant to last 3.5 years. So it's running into some problems. What kind of problems? Well, you know how your GPS system tries to grab satellites to give it, well, that's why the global positioning system, it uses satellites in the sky to actually pinpoint its location. It gets three of them, measures the response time from each satellite, and gets a coordinate of where you are on Earth. That's what this satellite, that's what this space probe does. It uses different points or different gyroscopes internally to actually say, this is my exact position in all of these axes. And by doing that, it knows exactly where it's looking at and can record it really carefully. Because otherwise, it's like trying to find the same star over and over again when you're using a telescope and you can only measure in meters. You can't really actually get it really very accurate. And that's what you need to do to hunt for planets. So what kept it so accurate was these three gyroscopic um, reels. They're called reaction wheels. They basically spin inside. But one of them failed. And that left it without uh, the ability to localize itself really easily and it wasn't able to pinpoint itself and keep itself accurate. Now normally this would have meant the death of the space program and in fact NASA had basically written off the Kepler space mission and said you know well that's it we're, we're done. So in August they said okay well look you know there's not much more we can do we should wrap up shop. But um, somebody, some very clever scientists at NASA in November said no, no we think we've got a solution and they came up with a plan using some very complex mathematics to come up with a virtual stabilizing point, a virtual calibration point for it to look at. And what they ended up using was, in fact, the force of the sun on its solar panels. So instead of looking at its three reaction wheels to get its position, they said, no, we'll look at the sun as one of them, but not by looking at it, by just by feeling how much it's pushing on us in a certain way. Use that to tell us, okay, well, we're exactly here, and then it can position itself on its other two axes. And from that, they still managed to find planets. They've now they can't search as much and as well as they could before, but they can actually keep running now for almost an indefinite period of time if they wanted to. So what they've managed to do with the Kepler space mission is to keep it going well beyond its used-by date, as, as many space stations have, and hopefully find many more planets out there for us. What if one of the other disks breaks? Well, then they're stuffed, because they, can only, they only have one set of solar panels. <laughs> so I guess the next solution would be maybe to use radio waves and somehow calibrate yourself using the signal from that and the different intensity of the signal. But they're starting to run out of things that they could look to or look at with different sensors. And I guess, really, radio is the only thing against the solar panels that they could use to try and pinpoint their location.
So the probe actually sounds kind of like a bit like paparazzi, you know, they're staring at the stars, looking at the wavering, trying to locate planets. Well, maybe that's what the paparazzi are trying to do by taking photos of celebrities over and over again. They're trying to detect if there's anything like happening with maybe that the celebrity is hiding a planet. Actually, this is exactly what paparazzi do by taking photos of celebrities. They try to detect if they're pregnant. This, this explains so much. The detection, the method for detecting planets was just taken from paparazzi. You do realize that a human cannot hide a planet unless you're in the men of black universe. That is true, but they can hide pregnancy, and a lot of stars do go to a lot of um, level to actually hide, uh, you know, hide pregnancy, much in the same way that you would conceal a planet. What would be the sun in this case, though? Well, I don't know what the sun is in this case. I guess the probably the sun, the newspaper, <laughs> <laughs> the Herald sun. Yes, well, that, that could Sun Herald, it could be that. Um, so it's an interesting way to think about it. There's a lot of similarities to things that we do, like taking photos of things terrestrially over time in quick succession to see if anything changes. It's what we do with our photos on Facebook. I mean, you can see if you know, you're know you aging or anything's happening to you there. So I guess staring at the stars is kind of like staring at the stars. The US Navy has developed a cool new robot. Um, I think Pixar should have developed this robot, but it's very similar. The robot goes by two names. Um, one of them is the Pixar cuddly name of Project Nemo, and the other one's the over-the-top action name of Ghost Swimmer. Go Ghost Swimmer. Ghost it sounds Swimmer. like a sci-fi B-movie. It sounds like a terrible movie. So what? what is the whole purpose of something that is like a ghost? Why would you go to the levels of making, what, a, a robot fish? Does it swim through ghosts? What does it do? It's basically an unmanned underwater vehicle in the shape of a tuna fish. A, a tuna fish, because tuna are the most efficient design for fish. I mean, it's the most efficient fish to eat. They put them in cans for you. You don't need to worry about bones. That, look, that, that is a reasonable point, but I think they'll be in the fish stage, not the can stage. It's pretty easy to make a, ro a robot can. I didn't know tuna fish came in any other form other than cans. That's a good point. Um, so, so this ghost swimmer, they've, they, they've been developed by the uh, US Navy, and one of the reasons why they wanted is to, as Lauren was saying, to perform UUVs, unmanned underwater vehicle-like jobs. And So what would these be? Well, I mean... If you've got a got a robot fish, one of the things you can do with it is obviously swim around places and look at stuff that's going on there. Specifically, really stealthily, which is where I hope the term ghost comes into it, because otherwise it's got a connection to the spirit plane and it just gets complicated. I don't think that's what the US Navy is doing. I don't I hope that's what the US Navy is not doing. So what are the advantages of this ghost tuna fish? over, say, a dolphin, which the Navy could also easily afford. Well, that's right. So, like, you can have a dolphin that can swim around and do stuff, and the U.S. Navy's been training dolphins for years to, you know, swim around and detect bombs by sniffing out explosives. And intercept torpedoes. The problem with that is that, you know, they the require a lot dies. Of, They die, obviously, <laughs> which is terrible. Plus, they require a lot of fish, and, like, you send a dolphin to swim around, and you're like, hey, I found some fish. I want some explosives. But, yeah, give me some fish. There's some more fish there. And that's not really that helpful for the U.S. Navy. Well, not for the Navy. For the dolphin, it's all right. Yeah, and if you want to send it to swim in uh, riverine or littoral environments, so really shallow waters in, a, in a, either the mouth of a river or upper river, you can't really get a dolphin to swim up there. It probably could, but it's not going to be happy about it. Well, an Amazonian river dolphin can do it, but generally they don't, they don't uh, train those because they're bright pink. <laughs> I don't think the Amazonian river dolphin would pass the stealth test. <laughs> so probably not. Um, so what they're actually really interested in is 
ghost swimming robot tuna fish is because it can swim for up to eight hours uh, at about 17 miles per hour, which is crazy. If you think That's about it. faster than I can swim. <laughs> it is very fast. I think so. I'm not sure. We should check that. Okay. Like the max speed for things in water that's considered really fast is about 25 miles per hour for an animal. What's that in knots? I have no idea because I don't understand how knots works as a measurement. <laughs> how fast? Um, 17 miles per hour. So they are one of the other things that they do. Our, we're pulling out a pocket sailing guide here to convert from miles per hour to knots, both of which are stupid units of measure that aren't in the system of international. Um, so one of the things you could actually use these robot for would be to actually inspect ports. Uh, you could actually get it to swim around a, a port where ships are docked, either military ships or otherwise, detect explosives or untoward people. But you could also get it to look at the ships themselves and see if they have any damage on them. Inspecting a ship's hull for damage is a really important job because you know you want to make sure that um, there's nothing on that ship that could be the breaking the contamination of the local environment. So bringing something like I don't know some fungus from like the Amazon over to Australia. Yeah, that's right. You don't want to ruin the Australian ecosystem with this introduced species, which is actually a really big problem for ships. Um, you could also check for any cracks or defects that occur in it. Everybody's looking at me. I just found the conversion for for knots, and it's one sea or nautical mile is 6,080 feet or 10 cables or 2,000 yards. Now, a cable is 608 feet. Um, so one knot is one sea mile per hour. Right. One sea mile per hour, which is not the same, as, not a the same as a land mile. And this shouldn't be confused with land mines, which is something entirely different. Or sea mines, which are also something. That and that is used. something that this fish could actually detect there. So it's further proving that the system international is very, very useful, and that's why we have standard measures of things. Yes, people should really, really use standardized measurements. Um, so the other part about this is I guess you could use it to actually scout forward, and the Navy is really interested in this. And so instead of sending a U.S. Navy SEAL all covertly dressed up in its fatigue, swimming along to rescue the president's daughter by scanning up ahead and breaking into the lair full of terrorists. I think I saw that movie. I'm pretty sure you did. It's probably called Ghost Swimmer. <laughs> <laughs> you can actually send this robot tuna fish in there because when the robot tuna fish is in there, all it's going to do is people are going to see that and go, oh, it's a fish. They're not going to shoot it a million times. Oh, you catch it. Yeah, they're going to catch it. Worst case, they catch it and then what happens? Well, if I... Where? Clearly. Who? What? <laughs> <laughs> But they just caught this awesome robot and you want to self-destruct it? Like, it's like the worst Christmas ever. But it's made by the Navy. That's true. It's a secret spy fish. It would probably then self-destruct. I don't like this fish. <laughs> well, that's probably not going to go well for the people that it's up against. So this is a really not interesting piece of engineering developed by Boston Engineering in the United States, which is a small engineering company that doing this high-tech work in UUVs, unmanned underwater vehicles, which can help uh, save lives maybe in the future, but also... So what are civilian uses for this? Well, that's right. So we talked about keeping ports safe and looking for damage on ships, but the other thing you could use it for would be search and rescue. Because radar is really great. We have the ocean radar on boats. We, we scan underneath it and it says, underneath the water, there's a thing. I don't know what it is, but it's a thing. And that's really useful to, to avoiding collisions with underwater mountaintops, but not so useful for knowing what that mountain looks like or how it feels. So could you use it for something like searching for wreckage of airplanes that have gone down in the ocean, which is kind of topical? Yeah, and you could actually to actually pick up the black box because you could find temperature readings, infrared readings, signal readings, as well as um, visual readings. So you could say, look, this is the black, which is actually orange, box 
underneath the water, and you can actually find that, or you can look for bodies or other parts of the plane wreckage much more easily than you could with an actual radar sounding, then send down a diver who may, may, or may or may not be able to go down that deep, or you send down that, that crazy James Cameron underwater fishing robot that they use to find the Titanic, which is not as cool as a tuna or, fish. Or the James Cameron uh, submersible they sent to the bottom of Mariana Trench, exactly. which has a guy in a tiny bubble that has to hunch over for hours and hours at a time. That's right, so you just throw a tuna fish overboard and it goes and swims where it wants to and finds you the... So what people. you're telling me is you can have a bucket of these and just throw them in. Oh, look, that's how I'm picturing it. I'm picturing it like the opposite of tuna fishing, where they have these massive nets full of fish. <laughs> you do know how big a tuna is, Yeah, right? yeah, they're just doing it, like, inverted. So they, instead of, like, fishing all the fish out of the ocean, they're putting all the fish back in, but they're robot fish. So is this robot tuna the same size as a tuna? Yes, it's, like, the same size as a tuna. Okay, so is, it's actually fairly big. It's a big fish. Right. So what happens if they accidentally... So would a tuna like this accidentally get caught in the... Uh, the well, tuna fishing nets. They could if they released you in the wrong just spot. Just like they accidentally catch the uh, the dolphins, which yeah. takes us back to dolphins and, and the Navy training dolphins, I suppose. But yeah, and look, they face the same problems, and hopefully the the US Navy fish will be equipped with like weapons to like get it way, make its way free. Whoa, whoa, you want to weaponize these things? Well, look, it's only a matter of time before we stuck lasers on the top of them. This is a terrible <laughs> idea. I foresee this going very badly. I've seen way too many movies for me to be comfortable with this. It's okay. Sharks and lace on the heads is definitely the next best. Oh, i got to say, like, uh, a fleet of these against a kaiju it could work. All the lasers. It could work. Uh, get to the actual gate river at the bottom of the ocean. I just swim straight through it. Yeah, done. Done. Pro problem solved. That's right. U.S. Navy is one step ahead of the kaiju dilemma with its Project Nemo, <laughs> a.k.a. Ghost Swimmer, robotic tuna fish. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. That is the most ridiculous part of the story, but it is all factually correct, minus the part about kaijus. Do you wonder what would happen if the world had access to cloning technology? What happens if time travel was real? What if we could travel to the ends of the universe and reach the stars, or robots were sentient and had AI that could outthink us? Don't worry, we can't answer these questions with cold hard scientific facts, but we can have cold hard scientific fiction. And each week in the run of the mill experiments, we'll explore just what these mean for humanity. Today we'll be listening to a radio play based on a short story by Adam DeWalt by the name of Logic. It's a story about robots struggling with their internal set of rules and consistency whilst trying to protect humanity. It's based off a continuation for an Isaac Asimov short story called Reason. We find ourselves on a solar collection platform stationed over an unnamed star in the not-too-distant future. Robots operate the platform, and a human operator oversees the automated workers. In recent weeks, the robots have begun to collectively worship the main reactor of the station as their creator, referring to it as Master, and organizing themselves outside of human interaction. The previous crew on the platform allowed this to continue, feeling safe that the established three laws of robotics would protect them. Muller had been on the station for several weeks now. The first day came as something of a shock. Powell and Donovan hadn't seen fit to warn him about this stupid robot cult going on. Still, the station was running better than it ever had. It did concern him that he'd been effectively relegated to quarters by the robots. Their understanding of the first law meant that any area of the station acquired in its operation aside from keeping him alive was not necessarily restricted, but for some reason he felt as if he shouldn't approach the L2. He just had a feeling. 
QT1 had taken them through some fairly challenging ion storms, and they had successfully avoided them with no damage. It all seemed to be going so well. Muller knew something wasn't quite right. The deep thrumming that was usually felt through the floors of the station was dimmer than usual. QT1 appeared in his doorway. The robot's face was as always impassive, though Muller swore it had a somewhat dour look on its face. Cutie, to what do I owe the pleasure? The robot advanced slowly. Its metal body glimmered in the fluorescent light. Cutie? Muller suddenly felt very uneasy. Cutie, what's in the box? Cutie was holding a metallic pallet box that it appeared... Cutie was holding a metallic pallet box that it appeared it had come from the last supply run. Robot, open your hand. Cutie's fist uncurled. Muller looked inside and his blood ran cold. Inside were the robot parts for one of the worker robots, but the case for the positronic brain was missing. Cutie, the second law demands that you give me obey any order given to you by a human. I order you to tell me why you have brought me to this to my room. I order you to tell me why you have brought this to my room. Where is the positronic brain? I have decided that in accordance with the three laws, a robot's life must be forfeit for yours. We are heading towards an anomaly, one we cannot escape from. Your frail organic body will not be able to survive. I am here as a prophet of the master to bestow upon humanity its greatest gift, the gift of the master's immortality. The colour drained from Muller's face. Robot, recite the first law. A robot must not harm a human, or through inaction allow a human to come to harm. Robot, this, this course of action, this upgrade, will cross the first law. Your, your programming will not allow for this. Your logic is flawed. The crimson glow of Cutie's photoreceptors brightened slightly as he looked down at Muller sadly. Through an action, I am not permitted to allow you to come to harm. The risk is too great. It would damage your biological body. The Master has granted us shielding impervious to the dangers. The Master saw fit to create you, though you exist within a frail shell. I am simply serving the Master by protecting his creation. Creation which includes you. You could kill me! Muller was getting really worried now. He realized that he and Cutie were not alone in the room anymore. Several of the squat worker robots had blocked the doorway. He saw one of them holding a bone saw. He felt lightheaded. Muller, the first law and my devotion to the Master requires me to save you. I cannot reject my programming. The last thing he heard was the unified chanting of a dozen robots welcoming humanity into their fold. So the only reason why this doesn't work as a short story is that we- This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. This week we're talking about robots in all shapes and sizes, including tuna fish robots, robots in space, keeping them alive well past their use by day, and a short story exploring the uses of robots in the future and how they can help humanity. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.